So uh, tonight's my great pleasure to introduce my friend uh, Daniel James Brown. Uh, I, you know, I. I first couldn't figure out why, why so many names, Dan Daniel James Brown. Uh, but then he reminded me there was this other writer named Dan Brown <laughs> who came along and ruined everything. He was just Dan Brown at one time. Uh, so he's Daniel James Brown, uh, the hardest working man in, in, uh, not in, in, not in show business, but in literature. Uh, because as, as those of you who have read the book, and well, how many of you have read the book? Oh my God. Oh, well, my, my work is done here. Uh, <laughs> Uh, about three quarters of you. Um, I don't need to tell you this book has been a publishing phenomenon right up there with, you know, Fifty Shades of Grey. <laughs> and, um, uh, you, know, uh, you know, any book by, by uh, what is it, Killing Lincoln, Killing uh, Kennedy, killing, killing Reagan, that guy. I didn't want to mention by him by name. Um, so, uh, no, seriously, uh, it, it has just been extraordinary, uh, this, this publishing phenomenon. It, it could not have happened to a nicer gentleman. Uh, I, I, I've gotten to know Dan. Uh, we were on a p uh, panel together uh, recently in, in Tucson at a literary festival. He is, uh, is he's very humble. Uh, he is, I think, somewhat, uh, although obviously proud of this great book that he has written, somewhat bemused by this publishing phenomena and just how it's taken off in so many d different directions. Um, I want to I want to read to you a little quote uh, that was um, from a writer in the New York Times about this book, uh, trying to understand the phenomenon, why it's been on the best-selling list for what now about four forty-five years, uh, uh, <laughs> at least two years, right? Um, he writes, uh, The Boys in the Boat is about who we used to be. This is Timothy Egan writing in the New York Times. The Boys in the Boat is about who we used to be uh, and who we still could be. Crew may not be a metaphor for life or a microcosm of it, as some of its enthusiasts claim. They point to the solitude, the work ethic, the sublimation of the ego, all elements of success, but there is joy and sometimes lasting and true in the distilled essence of those, uh, those kids in what they were doing in 1936. That is, a base competition, a race to be won by whichever side could endure the most pain in a coordinated burst, a symphony of motion, as the coach and, and the boat builder put it. On water, at least, there was no more beautiful music. So uh, Dan, uh, Daniel James Brown, uh, as you will see, is a very, very down-to-earth guy who doesn't, uh, you know, you know, he's, you'll see, he's very, he's very, very direct in every sense. Uh, but a little bit background about him, um, not to embarrass him, he uh, he he uh, got a BA in in, in English from uh, Berkeley, uh, a master's from UCLA. He's taught at uh, various places like San Jose State University and also Stanford. He wrote two other great books uh, that didn't really become uh, the phenomenon that this book did, uh, The Indifferent Stars Above, which is about the Donner Party. We've got some fans here. And uh, Under a Flaming Sky, the great Hinckley firestorm of 1894. Uh, he had a relative who was in this fire, who was killed in this fire, I believe. Um, so he's been all over the map. He's, he's writing, I, th I think he's at work on a new book. I hope he is. Uh, but he's been uh, dragged all over the country uh, talking about this book for about two years now. And we're so pleased to have him here at Colorado College uh, to, to hear about 
the boys in the boat. So without further ado, Dan Brown. Thank you, Hampton. We call him Dan Brown the Lesser in my household. <laughs> he did steal my name, and I've never quite gotten over that. I'm, I am so happy to be here, and I'm also so honored to be introduced by Hampton's sides. Something you may not know is that I have been a fan of his since the day his first book came out. And um, he is one of a handful of people uh, who write uh, narrative nonfiction that really inspired me to try my, my own hand at it. Uh, there's four or five people that, uh, that led me to, to attempt to do this, and Hampton's right there at the top of that list. So I'm absolutely honored to be uh, introduced by Hampton and, and to be here. Um, so The Boys in the Boat. It, um, it's a story that culminates, of course, in the in Berlin at the 1936 Olympics. And I think most Americans, when they hear that phrase, 36 Olympics, the first thing that comes to mind is the Jesse Owens story. And with good reason. You know, the Jesse Owens story is one of those great American stories that we keep alive, we put in our textbooks, we tell our kids and our grandkids, because it is a story that helps define who we are as a people. It reminds us of the things we value, including racial tolerance and a, plain, a level playing field, great individual achievement. I think this story of these nine kids from um, Western Washington who got on the Manhattan and went to Berlin that summer with Jesse, I think their story um, also helps remind us of who we are, and I think that's why it resonates as well as it does. I think it reminds us that at least historically, we've been a people that have been pretty good at building great teams and pulling together and getting things done. I'm frankly not sure that's true today as it has been historically, but and I'll come back to that at the end a little bit. But I think it's something we still aspire to and, and see as part of our essential natures as Americans. Um, so I always like to start by acknowledging uh, Jesse uh, and his story. Um, first, let me talk a little bit about how I came to write this book. I live in a fairly rural uh, area in western Washington state, out east of Seattle. And although it's a fairly rural uh, neighborhood, we have this dreadful thing called a homeowners association. <laughs> and now you may love your homeowners association. Um, Mine is comprised of the 12 or so most cantankerous people in Washington state. And we are, by virtue of the charter of this homeowners association, we are made to get together once a year uh, to find something to argue about, which we, we do every year and we, we go at very with great gusto. I'm indebted, though, to my uh, homeowners association for one thing, and that is that I think it was uh, eight years ago now, the meeting was at my house, and at the end of the meeting, uh, a lady I knew only as Judy came up to me, and she introduced herself, and she said that she'd been reading uh, one of my earlier books, Under a Flaming Sky, to her father, and that her father was in the last couple months of his life. He was really enjoying that book, and, and she asked if I would come down to meet her dad. 
So I think it was the next day I went down and I met this elderly gentleman named Joe Rance. And, and Joe, was, uh, Joe was very weak. He was on a recliner. He was stretched out. He was on oxygen. But he was very alert mentally. And so I sat down with Joe, and we talked just very briefly about that earlier book. And then Judy started steering the conversation towards her dad's story. And Joe began to talk about his uh, childhood and his adolescence growing up during the Great Depression. And if you've read the book, you know that he had a very, very heart-rending, heartwarming, uh, sort of wrenching story to tell about his family circumstances during the Depression. And that really got to me itself. Then he went on and he began to talk about how he began to row on crew at the University of Washington starting in the fall of 1933 and how that um, changed his life, um, or began to change his life. And I noticed as he was telling me this story, um, he began to uh, tear up from time to time. He was tearing up in particular whenever he talked about any, any of the other boys who had rowed with him in, in that crew. And he told this story, and he, and, and he told how he, they wound up rowing for an Olympic gold medal against a German boat in Berlin with Hitler watching on, and, and my jaw just dropped. I mean, I, uh, I just couldn't believe the story I was hearing. What I didn't know uh, at that moment was that Judy, uh, Joe's daughter, had had a, an agenda beyond just introducing <laughs> me to her dad. Um, she knew I was a writer, and she had been hoping to write a book and being frustrated uh, by that process. And so, uh, so she sort of lured me down there and, and set a trap. But it was a very, a very good trap, a trap that worked out for everybody, I think. Uh, but anyway, as Joe, was, as Joe was talking, he was tearing up a lot. And at first, I thought it was for the loss of his, these boys who he rode with. Almost all of them had died in the preceding few years. And, and I think that was part of why there, there, there were tears there. But as he talked on, I realized there was an enormous amount of joy and pride in those tears. And, and that was really coming through the tears. And I, I gradually began to realize that there was something really going on here. So at the end of the conversation, I just sort of blurted out. I'm usually very picky about a book topic. But I just blurted out. I said, Joe, can I write a book about your life? And, and I put it totally the wrong way. He just he shook his head. He looked down at, the, at his uh, chest, and he said, no. And my heart sort of sank. Then he looked up, and I'll never forget this, because he had those tears in his eyes again. And he sort of croaked out. He said, but you could write a book about the boat. And I didn't know what he meant at first. I thought he meant the Husky Clipper, this beautiful cedar shell that they had rowed in Berlin. Then I realized, of course, that what he meant by the boat was the boat and those boys he had rowed with, but something more even than that. Really, what they had all done together and what they had all become together that summer in 1936, 75 years before, that almost living, breathing thing that they became together. And, and that really made an impact on me. And so I set out the next day on what turned out to be about a four-and-a-half-year odyssey of research and, and writing, uh, and that eventually turned into um, The Boys in the Boat. Now, since the books come out, I get emails every day from readers around the country, and there are certain things that come up, certain comments that come up all the time. 
And, and one of those comments is um, every day somebody says, well, I almost didn't read your book because I figured it was about rowing and really what could be more boring than a book about rowing. Um, fortunately, fortunately, they go on usually to say, wow, I was wrong. It's about a lot more than rowing. Um, and I have to say, you know, I think I would have been one of those people myself if I'd seen this book on a shelf someplace uh, eight years ago. I, it wouldn't have been my inclination to pick it up because of, if I thought it was about rowing. But it really, the story, as I discovered during that odyssey I just mentioned of research and writing, I discovered that it is really about much, much more than rowing. It turned out to be a big epic story about the human heart. It turned out to be about this one boy, Joe, who first learned that he couldn't trust anyone in the world, not even his own parents. Then learned that to get what he wanted out of life, he had to do exactly that, learn to trust people on a very deep, fundamental level. It was about an almost mystical, sage-like figure, a British boat builder named George Yeoman Pocock, and how he shaped the lives of these young men. It was a story about a somewhat hard man named Al Ulbrichsen who had an absolute obsession with an Olympic dream. It was a love story. It was a story about grit and determination in the face of overwhelming odds, about punishing pain, psychological devastation, but also about ultimate jubilation. It was a story about the American genius for defying long odds. It was a story about the cold realities of life in America during the Great Depression and the Dust Bowl. It was about the building of the Grand Coulee Dam. It was about Goebbels and Hitler and Lenny Riefenstahl. It was about propaganda and deceit. It was about Nazi cynicism come face to face with democratic idealism. Most of all, it was a story about nine very decent, hardworking young men who became together part of something much, much larger than themselves. So it turned, it turned out to be a series of surprises for me as a writer as I discovered all these different components to the story. Now, that's not to say, though, that rowing isn't a central part of the book. The rowing is the stage on which a lot of other stuff happens. And I, I just want to take a minute to talk about rowing because I've actually become a, a pretty big fan of rowing. It turns out there are interesting things about rowing. <laughs> Who knew? And I just want to tick through some of the things I think that are, are interesting about it as a an, as an sport or as an endeavor. endeavor. Um, first of all, there's the extreme physical challenge involved in this sport. And I'm talking especially about this Olympic level, of course, but really at almost any level. Rowing is physically very, very demanding. Um, a rowing coach once said that rowing a 2,000-meter Olympic sprint is like playing two NBA basketball games back to back and doing it in about six minutes in terms of the physiological toll it takes on the body. It is, requires an extraordinary amount of fitness. There's very few things that people do that uh, demand such an exquisite level of coordination and synchronization and teamwork uh, as rowing does. Another rowing coach said that putting eight men or women in a shell and asking them to row this 2,000-meter race is like putting them in front of eight golf balls, giving them golf clubs, asking them to swing and hit those golf balls at precisely the same moment, and then to do that over and over 
every two or three seconds for the next six minutes. That's the kind of precision that is required to row at that level. There's the incredible mental toughness uh, of it. You know, it's a sport that doesn't really offer a great deal in the way of glory or anything in the way of monetary reward. And yet you, f you see rowers of all ages out on lakes and streams, uh, at least where I live up in the northwest, in the rain and the sleet and the snow at 5 in the morning out there doing this incredibly tough thing. It takes a lot of mental toughness. There's a long, colorful history associated with the sport. I don't remember if it was Yale that challenged Harvard or the other way around, but in 1852, those two schools staged a boat race. That was the first intercollegiate athletic uh, event of any kind in the United States, long before there was college football or college basketball. That was in 1852. There's the beauty of the sport, particularly in these days when they rode in these gorgeous handcrafted shells. And then finally, there's a lot more drama in a crew race than that might be obvious if you've ever watched one casually from the banks of a lake or something. So much of the drama in a crew race takes place inside the boat. And one of the things I wanted to do was put you as readers in the boat so you could uh, experience that drama yourself firsthand. But also, a lot of the drama in the era I'm writing about came from the enormous popularity of rowing as a spectator sport. It's hard to realize these days, but in the 20s and 30s and into the 40s, 80, 90, 100,000 people would turn out for a rowing regatta. And not just on the Charles River in, in Boston, um, where that still happens once a year, but all over the country, wherever there was water, on Lake Washington in Seattle, on the estuary in the Bay Area, down in Long Beach, on the Great Lakes, in, in lots of places, tens of thousands of people would turn out to watch one of these races. Um, the um, rowing was actually the largest, the rowing uh, regatta grounds in Berlin was the second largest spectator venue at the 36 Olympics, following only the big stadium, the Colosseum that the Nazis built in Berlin itself. Prominent oarsmen were featured on the covers of national magazines. A coxswain's sore throat could make headlines in the newspapers. So, um, so it was enormously popular and, and enormously exciting. And I think the best way to get a sense of that excitement is to show, show you a race. So what we're going to do here is show you the gold medal race from um, 1936. I, I need to sort of set the stage here uh, to remind you of what's going on. The, the day of the race, you know, this race takes place actually outside of Berlin in a place called Grunau on a body of water called the Longer Sea. The day of the, of the race, it was um, a blustery, rainy day. There was a headwind coming down the race course. The American boat and the British boat had turned in the two fastest qualifying times. And ordinarily, that would have given them their preferred lane assignments. Instead, they were assigned lanes five and six out in the widest, windiest part of the longer sea. And strangely, or maybe not strangely, the German and the Italian boats, the two fascist powers, which had turned in slow qualifying times, were assigned lanes one and two, which were protected the whole length of the race course. So they had that handicap. They were going to be rowing into a, a stiff, quartering headwind. To make matters worse, 
Don Yoon, the stroke or the stroke is the, the person that sits right in front of the coxswain. He sets the rhythm for the whole boat. Everybody else in the boat replicates the rhythm at which he is rowing. So it's absolutely critical to the success of the boat. Don Yoon, the American um, stroke or had been sick on and off for weeks. And in the days leading up to the, the medal race, he'd been running a high fever. The coach kept him in bed right up till the morning of the race only put him in the boat at the last minute because the other guys demanded that he be put in the boat. But he was a very sick kid when he, when, he, uh, when he got into that boat that day. Hitler and Goebbels and Goering and uh, pretty much the whole top hierarchy of the Nazi party was there that day. There were about 75,000 fans, mostly Germans, although there were Americans and, and other Europeans there that day. When Hitler entered the regatta grounds, the crowd rose to their feet, gave the Nazi salute, began to chant, Sieg Heil, Sieg Heil, Sieg Heil. Hitler and his entourage went up on the balcony of a boathouse, and the rowing events got underway. Germany promptly won gold medals in the first five rowing events that day, leading up to the eight-oared race, which is the big prestige event. But as Germany won gold medal after gold medal, both the Nazi party officials on the balcony and also the fans became more and more frenzied. And as the Americans rode out to the starting line, the crowd was chanting Deutschland, Deutschland, Deutschland. They lined up at the starting line. The race, start of the race was called, and because they were out in the windiest part of the course, they didn't hear the start when it was called. They didn't know the race had begun until they saw boats to one side lurch forward. They rowed hard out into the widest, windiest part of the longer sea, but halfway through the race, a thousand meters down the race course, they and the Brits were tied for dead last. Bobby Mock, their coxswain, was sitting in the coxswain's seat, looking down the course with waves breaking over the bow of the boat. Italy and Germany were streaking down lanes one and two towards what seemed to be inevitable gold medal and silver medal finishes. But of course, that's not the way it ends, and we're going to see here how it ends. You will not see the American boat, though, until very near the end of this clip. When you do see them, they'll be at the very top of the screen. So let me see if I can make this go. Die Entscheidung im Achter. Schweiz, Ungarn, England, Amerika, Italien und Deutschland. Zum ersten Mal bei den Olympischen Spielen hat sich ein deutscher Achter bis zur Entscheidung durchgekämpft. Now the Americans are at the very top, but they're already out of view. This is Italy. And there's Germany. Americans.
the Germans, the Italians, it's Bobby Mock. And there are the Americans. That's Bobby Mock. Don Yum feeling better. Joe Rance. Shorty Hunt. Uh, Stub McMillan. Now, that clip is from um, Lenny Riefenstahl's film Olympia, this big. Um, propaganda slash documentary that she made for the night for the Nazi parties um, and Lenny Riefenstahl's a whole story unto herself and I, I won't get into all that but um, whatever else one could and should say about her she was a very good filmmaker and in case you're wondering um, there were not cameras in the boat the day of the medal race those close-up shots what she did is um, all the pullback shots are, were filmed the day of the race. Uh, she got the uh, Americans and the Germans and the Italians the next day to row again, and she did put cameras in the boat. And so she's got all those close-ups, and then she cut those close-ups in. And if you notice, she cuts them in at a more and more frenetic pace as the race gets near its climax. So you've got these oars flying in your face and the coxswains, little megaphones, and it's a, it's a pretty compelling piece of film, I think. Anyway, that was the gold medal race. Now, um, along with uh, comments about expecting uh, the, boat, uh, the book rather to be boring, um, there's a couple other comments that come up in my emails all the time. And there's two of them that are, in combination, very interesting to me. One is I get email every day from readers, and for some reason, a little more from men than from women, but from both genders, get email from people that said they just finished the book with tears in their eyes. The other uh, that comes up is, I get email from people on both sides of our current political spectrum, sometimes very far to one side or the other on our political spectrum, who say, basically, if only people on the other side would read the book, this would be a much, much better world. <laughs> I just think that's fascinating. Uh, I mean, I, this, I have my own political views, but this the book, I really didn't have any kind of political intent, intent or agenda at all. But I, I think it's really interesting to think about those two, those two things in combination. I mean, what is it 
about this story that provoke such strong emotions from so many of us, that is from such a wide spectrum of us, from liberals to conservatives, different religious groups, whatever. There's something about the story that really seems to resonate across a very broad audience. So I've been trying to figure out what that is. I mean, I think part of it, particularly for older readers, is just sort of nostalgia, remembering a time when things were a little simpler and cut and dry and we were getting along better and pulling together better. So there's a sort of sense of things gone. I don't think that's the only thing, though. I think, I think a very important part of it is that people get very attached to these nine young men. They, they like them as people, as characters. And so I've been thinking about, well, what is it about these particular nine kids that, that so many people seem to be able to find you know, something admirable in? And so I have my own little list that I'm going to go through. You may have your own. I'm not at all sure this is the right list, and it's certainly not uh, the only list. But see, there's, these are some of the qualities that I think that these young men embody that, that resonate with, with us in general. First of all, I just think it's very easy to identify with them. The, their sort of humble roots identify them as sort of quintessentially American. These were kids that grew up in mill towns, on, on dairy farms, or working in shipyards uh, in Washington state. To get where they wanted to go to realize this dream, they had to go up against and row. First of all, they're very good rivals at Cal Berkeley, my alma mater. Uh, then they had to go up against and defeat kids from the East Coast schools, kids who in many cases had learned to row in prep schools, kids who were in many cases the sons of titans of industry or U.S. senators or even presidents of the United States. FDR had two sons rowing at the same time these guys were rowing. Those were the kinds of kids that tended to row in the East in those days. Then they had to go up against and defeat kids from Oxford and Cambridge in the UK, kids who were in some cases literally aristocrats. Then they had to go on and defeat uh, a, basically a hand-picked Nazi crew in, in that grace you just saw. So they were quintessential American underdogs. They were always coming up against and overcoming higher and higher levels of power and prestige. And I think that's a story that we, we all identify with um, to some extent. Second, and, and this is very closely related, maybe in, in some ways it's the same thing, but it's very hard not to admire their extraordinary perseverance. The kids that wound up in that boat that you just saw, they were the end product of a process that over three years whittled hundreds and hundreds of kids down to the nine in that boat. They were the ones that stayed with it, that showed up day after day, rowing out on Lake Washington in the sleet and the wind and the snow and the rain, the endless, endless rain. Um, <laughs> don't get me started. <laughs> of Seattle. Um, they, were the, they were the ones that kept at it. And doing so at a time when they had Al Ulbrichsen, who was not an easy man, barking at them incessantly, constantly threatening to cut them. And at a time when they were having a hard time getting a couple meals a day, it was the middle of the Great Depression. They were having a hard time simply feeding themselves. So extraordinary perseverance. The third thing is maybe one shade more abstract, but really important. 
they were earnest. And what I mean by that is they believed in the importance of what they were doing. They took a great, they took pride in how well they rode. Now, of course, they took pride in representing their country in Berlin, and anybody would, I think. But the thing about these guys is that they took pride in their rowing. By, by 1936, they were taking pride in their rowing every time they went out. They were, uh, they were measuring how well they did. They were taking pride in it. And that really came from this figure of George Pocock, the boat builder. And if you haven't read the book, just very briefly, Pocock was this British-born um, boat builder. But he was a consummate craftsman. He approached building these boats as a craft. And he taught these boys, he was also a very good oarsman, he taught these boys to approach their rowing as if it were a craft. He taught them, he said, when I build one of these shells and I walk away from it, I leave a piece of my heart in that boat. When you walk away from a race, I want you to leave a piece of your heart in that race, to approach it as a craft. And that really resonated with, particularly with Joe Rance, but with all these kids and actually with generations of young men that rode at Washington during those years. He taught them that by practicing craft, by approaching whatever they were doing in life with that attitude, they would elevate themselves, they would lift themselves up. For Pocock, there was even a spiritual dimension to rowing. He said many things like this. This is just one of a whole number of things he said along these lines. He said, it's a great art is rowing. It's the finest art there is. It's a symphony of motion. And when you are rowing well, why it's nearing perfection. And when you near perfection, you're touching the divine. The fourth thing is their extraordinary level of mutual respect and trust. The trust that these guys developed for one another in the years that they came together, in the years that they became this crew, it was really something remarkable. And I, I should say, first of all, trust is absolutely essential in rowing as it is in almost nothing else. I mean, from the moment you step into one of these shells, the shells are only 24 inches wide. Every movement you make in that boat affects everybody else in the boat. A flick of the wrist can mess everything up. Everybody is trusting everybody else to be doing the right thing at the right time, to, put, to be putting his or her whole weight into every pull of the oars. You can't even see where you're going. You're rowing with your back to the finish line. You're, all, you're trusting the coxswain to be doing the right thing. So it's a sport that's all about trust. And by the summer of 1936, these guys trusted one another and cared for one another on a level that's really hard to, um, to overstate. I was watching a, a documentary the other night about the Navy SEALs and a lot of the language that they used to talk about one another and, and how they felt about one another, these SEAL teams, was very reminiscent of the kind of language that these guys used to talk about one another. And I should mention, these guys felt that way about one another, cared about one another till the very ends of their lives. And then the final thing that I would point out as a hallmark of their character that I think contributed greatly to their success that I think is very admirable is this. In many ways, it's the least obvious trait, but I think it's the most important. Every one of these guys had a measure of humility. Now, make no mistake, these were big strapping boys. Uh, they were audacious. It's an audacious thing to go out for a crew and think you're going to win an Olympic gold medal. But over the years that they came together, all that pain, all that tribulation out on the water, 
It taught them that there were limits to their individual capabilities. It taught them there were things they could learn from one another, things they could learn from their coaches, things they could learn from their arch rivals at Cal. And that little measure of humility that they developed, I think is the gateway through which they were able to ultimately approach one another, begin to trust one another, and become the great collegiate crew that they, that they did. And I, I, I also want to mention that these guys retained that humility till the end of their lives, too. These guys came home that summer of 1936, and to a man, they took those gold medals and they put them away someplace. They put them in a sock drawer or whatever. And they went out and they tried to get a job to get through another year of school. Some of them never mentioned to their own kids until their kids were grown up that they had rode in an Olympic race, let alone pulled out the gold medals to show it. When I talk out in Seattle, I'm always uh, meeting uh, people that worked at Boeing with Joe Rance. And I hear this over and over again from people. I worked 20 years, three desks down from Joe, never mentioned he had a gold medal. That, that was true of almost all of them. They just they had this essential humility about what they had done. And I think that that's really very telling. So when I think about this book, when I stand back from it um, and contemplate what it means for me, and I, I really wasn't thinking in these terms when I wrote the book, but after I was finished and I started thinking about what it meant to me, I think this story of these nine young Americans who climbed in a boat and learn to pull together so powerfully and so beautifully. I think that's an almost perfect metaphor for what that generation of Americans did. You know, that generation, I'm talking about what Tom Brokaw called the greatest generation, the generation that was my father, my mother, my aunts, my uncles. They almost universally during the Depression were humbled by that experience. The deprivations of the uh, Great Depression, inflicted pain. It taught people humility. And I believe that humility was part of why that generation was able to learn to pull together and get great things done. And they did. You know, they built great monuments like the Grand Coulee Dam. But more than that, they won World War II on not one, but on two fronts. After the war, they built the most prosperous era in our nation's history. So I, I'm a huge admirer of that generation. I want to finish by just, um, when I was researching the book, as I got towards the, the chapters uh, about Berlin, I, I, I wanted to go to Berlin and uh, see it for myself. And the, the race course is still there. So I went out to the race course at Grunau. And while I was there, I had a chance to uh, go up in the balcony from which Hitler and the other Nazis had watched the race. And as I stood there, it, it was pretty emotional for me, actually. And I, I had sort of an epiphany. And I just want to read to you what was going through my mind as I stood there that day. Let's see. I'll start here. I visited the Wassersports Museum in Grunau, where late in the afternoon, Werner Philip, the director, kindly led me up a set of stairs to the balcony of House Vest. I stood there for a long, quiet minute, near where Hitler stood 75 years before, gazing out over the longer sea, seeing it much as he saw it. Down below me, Young men were unloading a shell from a truck, 
singing something softly in German and preparing for an evening row. Out on the water, a single scholar, his blades glinting, worked his way down one of the lanes toward the large Yale sign at the end of the course. Closer to me, swallows flew low over the water on silent wings, silhouetted against the declining sun, touching the water from time to time, dimpling the silver surface. Standing there, watching them, it occurred to me that when Hitler watched Joe and the boys fight their way back from the rear of the field to sweep ahead of Italy and Germany 75 years ago, he saw but did not recognize heralds of his doom. He could not have known that one day hundreds of thousands of boys just like them, boys who shared their essential natures, decent and unassuming, not privileged or favored by anything in particular, just loyal, committed, and perseverant, would return to Germany, dressed in olive drab, hunting him down. They are almost all gone now, the legions of young men who saved the world in the years just before I was born. But that afternoon, standing on the balcony of House West, I was swept with gratitude for their goodness and their grace, their humility and their honor, their simple civility, and all the things they taught us before they flitted across the evening water and finally vanished into the night. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. We have some time for some questions from the audience, and specifically this audience. I think like three quarters of you have read this book, so uh, let's let's hear some really great questions from you guys. We've got about 15 minutes or so, and then we also have some books on sale. Uh, I think you'd be willing to do some signing sure. and some uh, and some a little bit of commerce too. Why not? Uh, uh, and, oh, also two things I wanted to mention. One is that uh, the boys in the boat, have, although we don't have this for sale, has just come out as a young adult book, uh, which is an interesting experience in and of itself. Um, and also, uh, I don't know how it's coming along, but I've read that the Weinstein Company is developing this as a major motion picture. Uh, so I don't know how far that's, well, maybe we can talk about that. Sure. But, um, so maybe I'll just start, actually, before I take the first question with the movie thing, because it always gets asked anyway. Um, that, that's right. The Weinstein Company uh, bought the film rights um, uh, shortly after we sold the book rights to Penguin, actually. Um, so they've had it for quite a while. And um, I'm not entirely in the loop. In fact, I'm hardly in the loop at all <laughs> as far as the development of the movie goes. But they do check in with me occasionally. Last I heard, they've been working on a script for a couple of years on and off, and they've gone through rewrites. And a few weeks ago, I had an indication that they actually have a script in hand now that they like. So I think that's an important milestone towards moving forward. You know, I can't guarantee that movie will ever happen. You just never know with Hollywood. Um, it really depends on a lot of factors. At some point, somebody has to decide to spend 
20 or 30 or 40 million dollars to actually make it happen. And so, you know, when that happens, we'll know it's really going to happen. So we'll, we'll have to see. But I'm optimistic at this point. So any questions? Uh, and and uh, we need to. Uh, this is being televised, so we we need to wait and get this on, so we can hear you on the on the mic. Just. Of the nine boys that were in that boat, were there some that were more reticent or was it more difficult for you to interview? Yeah, there were some that were, um, were more difficult to find information out. Well, first of all, only two of them were alive when I started. Um, Joe Rance and Roger Morris were still alive. And to tell you the truth, Roger's memory was pretty far gone. So I really had to depend a lot on the families of all nine guys. Fortunately, the families, the, all nine families have been sitting on this story for, uh, at that point, 75 years, really thinking it deserved to be told. And they were militant about it, really. So when they found out through Judy what I was doing, they started coming to me with boxes of letters and diaries and news clippings. And they sat down with me for hundreds, cumulatively, hundreds of hours of interviews about their dad or their grandfather, as the case might be. So I, I really was very dependent on the families. Um, and there were different, I could not develop all nine of them in the same level of detail because some families had more and some had less. The reason Joe Rance is so richly developed is that Judy had spent the last five years of her dad's life following him around with a pad of paper and a pencil, asking him just incredibly detailed questions about this. Like, the night your family drove away and left you in Squim, what kind of food was in the house? What was the weather like? You know, what were you feeling? And so even after Joe passed away, I had boxes of notebooks that I could use uh, to develop Joe. Some of the, like, Gordy Adam was very hard to develop. Uh, there were some relatives, they, they didn't have nearly as much as some of the other families did. So there was you know, the discrepancy in how much I could say about different ones. So given that you had all the, these boxes of things, what was the first sentence you wrote when you started to write? <laughs> uh, the first sentence I wrote would probably be the first sentence in the book, because that's actually the way I work. Yep. This book was born on What's a wrong with you? Drizzly. <laughs> you know, it's, what I do, just very briefly in my writing process, I spent about a year after I met Joe just researching the heck out of the big story, getting the arc of the story. Who were these guys? What were the important events that happened to them? What were the important things happening in Germany at the same time? What was going on in Seattle during that time? Just sort of scoping out the story on a macro level. The way I work then is having done that, knowing what the arc of the story is or the big picture of the story. The way I work, and I know a lot of writers don't do this, but I just I start with, okay, scene one. And I think in terms of scenes, that's something that I'm, I feel strongly about. The kind of writing I do, um, I don't really write chapters. I write scenes. And a scene could be anything from a paragraph, I suppose, to five or six pages. But it's a discrete thing that happened in a setting involving people. The first scene of this book was Joe and Roger walking across campus, going down to the Shell House on whatever, that, I think it was October 
1933. So that what I do then is I go and I research that scene, just everything about what was going on that day in Seattle. I find photographs of what that were taken on the campus that day, so I can see what kids dressed like in those days. Uh, I get the weather for that day, just very micro level of research. Anyway, so I work through the book linear, in a linear fashion, writing one scene after another. There's one over here. Uh, well, first of all, I want to assure you that uh, there are some of us that read and very much enjoyed the boring parts. And uh, <laughs> having read almost every book on rowing, including The Amateurs by Edward Haberstam, The Way of the Man with a Blade by Jumbo Edwards, you have captured the experience of rowing like no other. I wonder how you did that. It's a miracle. <laughs> Because I'm not a rower. I mean, I make no bones about it. I don't know. I have, at this point, I've been in a shell a few times. I have flailed at the water in a very embarrassing way. Um, I'm, but I'm definitely not a rower. You know, I was conscious of that. Like the day after, met, after I met Joe, one of the first things I thought about and worried about was how are you going to write about a sport you don't do? And so I immediately set out to, uh, to meet people. The, the crew, the current crew program down at the University of Washington, when they found out what I was doing, they were very excited about it because it redounds to the glory of their crew program. So they made their, their coaches and their best rowers available to me. Through them, I met a lot of Olympic caliber rowers. So, and they took me out on the launch and out in the shell. And so I spent a lot of time that first year just trying to get the rowing stuff. I really wanted to get the rowing stuff right on a technical level, but more than that even, I wanted to get it right on the experience level. The, the, so I asked a lot of questions like, what is it like to row in really rough water? What's it like to row when there's ice in your oarlocks? What's it like to row in dusk? You know, just the experience kinds of questions. And, and so it was, I got a huge amount of help from a very large number of, of rowers. I felt very much that Seattle was one of the characters in the book. And I was fascinated by Royal Brougham's uh, agenda to, for the country to see it as something other than a backwater. Did that, was that realized after the win? It was to a large extent. I mean, it was the beginning, perhaps, of a process. Um, you know, Seattle today, you think of Starbucks and Microsoft and, and Boeing, and none of that existed. Uh, well, actually, Bill Boeing was starting to build airplanes about that time. But Seattle really was a backwater. And um, people on the East Coast literally didn't know where it was. These guys would go east to row uh, uh, in, on the Hudson River. And, and lots of people just didn't know where Seattle was. So um, the, the experience of this crew, it really did put them into a world spotlight for the first time. Seattle had never had a successful, really successful um, athletic team. The University of Washington football team had been quite good, but they'd never really been on a world stage. And so it was the beginning of a process that gradually, I think, began to put Seattle on the map. Uh, I was just wondering, because you said that what brought you to this story was a trap, a good trap, but 
I was just wondering what normally brings you to a topic? How do you know what stories that you want to tell? Yeah. You know, I'm really wrestling with that right now um, because I'm, tr I'm trying to figure out what the next book is. And I have rejected in my head probably two dozen ideas in the last year or so. Um, I was, the first couple books were basically, I had a family history associated with those books, and they were things I had thought about all my time I was growing up, and so I was sort of primed to write those stories. This one came to me through Judy. And actually, before I leave Colorado College, I'm going to ask Hampton what his process for finding a topic is, because it's, I'm realizing I don't really know, uh, you know, how to find a great topic. It's really a large challenge. But what I do know is what I'm looking for. And I'm looking for all the elements of a good story in a rich historical setting. And it has to be something that I can care enough about to spend the next six years of my life you know, with. You know, four years of writing and a couple years of going out and talking about the book. It's a big commitment. So, so I think a lot about and the reason I reject, have rejected so many ideas is that I get a lot of things that are interesting, but they don't have an interesting setting. Or they're interesting, but there's no documentation to back it up. Or they're interesting, but the characters really are, the situation's interesting, but the characters aren't interesting. Or the characters are interesting, but there's no real plot. There's no real obstacle they have to overcome. So, I mean, Hampton's very familiar with this. There's these elements that, are all, that go into a great story, and it's really hard to find one that hasn't been written about before. So, but those are the kinds of things I look for. We, shouldn't, we should make you leave right now so you can get going on your next book, but um, maybe one or two more questions, and then uh, we'll, we'll sell some books as well. Um, by the way, the books uh, which are uh, being sold by the uh, journalist in residence program. They're they're discounted, heavily discounted. They're they're ten dollars for students and fifteen for uh, the rest of you. Uh, but we can only deal with cash. So just so you know, uh, as you're uh, walking out the door, there's a few books for sale anyway. Let's have maybe two more questions and then we'll let him go write his next book. <laughs> this is the home of the United States Olympic Committee, and the Olympics are coming up next year. Can you talk a little bit about have you been invited? Or I think you know that team is particularly inspirational for the younger team. I don't see them. I see a change generationally in humility and in working together in the Olympics and doping and those kinds of things and honesty. And can you talk a little bit about your association with the Olympics? Uh, yeah, I, I, I am going to be doing a. Um a little promotional sort of video, not a promotional video, it's not to promote the book, it's just the opposite. A little video that, as I understand it, the U.S. Olympic Committee is going to show to all the athletes before they leave Houston and head for Rio. Um, and we're working uh, on a script for that. But it's basically going to be that message that these, these are who these guys were, this is how they did it. They were Team USA, you are Team USA. So at this point, that's my only association with the, the 2016 Olympics. Thank you. Um, thank you for coming to Colorado College. Um, I'm part Husky, so bow down to Washington. <laughs> um, Go Bears. <laughs> bow down to Washington. <laughs> um, so the protagonist in the book passed away shortly after you met him and started writing. 
and you did your research for however many years you did that. Are there questions now you'd like to ask them that you didn't know after the fact, after you sort of put this book together? Yeah, I mean, I'm sure there are. Inevitably, as you're doing it, you know, you come across, you, you really wish you could say this about them, but you just don't know if that happened or not. Or this, there's plot points where you wish you could develop the plot, but you don't know because they're gone. It's not in the notes. There's nothing you can do. So there's lots of little junctures along the way. The, thing I, the only thing I really regret, and I regret this a lot, and there, not that I could do anything about it, but it's too bad that none of these guys lived to see, I think, this book. Um, you know, I, I, whether they would approve of it or not, whether they would think I got it right and did justice to them, I can only speculate. But based on the reactions of their families, which just have to sort of be proxies for me, the families have been wildly happy about it. And so that, that pleases me. It makes, it makes me hope and, and believe that maybe these guys would have liked it. But I would, I would really wish they could have seen how their story has you know, propagated across the country. Uh, so that wraps up, I think, the evening, uh, except for he's going to meet with indiv individuals. Uh, I think he's, uh, many of you have brought books I've seen. Uh, I know he would like to, to meet with you and uh, sign books. And we have some on sale here. So uh, also hope, uh, as a reminder, that you will come uh, next, next month, uh, December 8th, to our next Journalist in Residence event, 7 p.m. here in uh, Gaylord uh, with Helen Thorpe and Jeff Hobbs. Thank you so much for coming. And thank you, Dan. <laughs>